Day School, it's Mr. Clement and Mrs. Massey, and today we are going to talk about being a peacemaker at the home and school, and this is a talk that Mrs. Massey and I have done before, uh, both at some conferences as well as at Kirk Day School, but it's been a little bit of time, and we thought it would be a good time, especially uh, considering what part of the year we are in, to rediscuss this. So again, the goal of this podcast is to really partner with you as parents, give you tools to, to equip you as you are parenting your child as they face uh, different challenges each day. And this an outflow of the mission of Kirk Day School. We are here to nurture, educate, and equip. And so we'll start with that. And uh, this is a big topic for both of us, Maria. And so why don't you just kind of give us an intro of what this is like and why we talk about being a peacemaker. Yeah, I think this is the foundation for all of the things that we do in this building. Um, Starting with what we believe about humanity that we, we both humanity. Each person that walks into the school has dignity, but also has depravity. Um, And that means that conflict happens. That means that it's going to happen between families. It's going to happen between kids. It's going to happen even between teachers. And our goal is how do we teach our kids to do conflict well? Ultimately, because we're shaping future spouses, future employers, future employees, and when they grow up, I would want them to know how to how to fight healthy and how to fight well. Mm, that's well said. And you know, even maritally speaking, it's it's always helpful to learn this. And, yes. You know, parents. One of the things that we do, uh, whether it's in kindergarten all the way up through sixth grade, is we talk about uh, the curriculum peacemakers, which mm-hmm. is uh, young peacemakers is what we use, which is a um, subsequent version of the Peacemaker book by a man named Ken Sandy. He's a Christian attorney who talks through uh, these pieces. And of course, in our handbook, we have a pretty robust policy on interpersonal relationships and conflict. And that, that is to be there, that, that is a goal, because we realize that as our children get older, conflict becomes heavier, it becomes mm-hmm. weightier. And we see that because kindergarten can be really sweet, but most of the time, kids in kindergarten, they're still in innocence. As they get older, that innocence really does turn to a little bit more maliciousness and exploration. And the feelings are hurt, I I would say, not just broader, but deeper. And so as we go to that, parents, we'll be referencing our handbook, uh, but know this, that our goal in any type of conflict, our goal is to restore relationships and transform hearts. And we're going to be talking through this. We're going to be talking really about our five uh, core expectations that we have in this. But let's go ahead and get started. And and let's start with kids' reaction in conflict. And so take us there, Maria. Yeah, so this is the majority of my job, right, is the kids come in from the playground or lunch and somebody's hit somebody or somebody's called somebody a name. So when we fight, we often fight the way that it's been modeled to us. Um, it's it's often looks similar to what we see at home, to what we're kind of allowed to get away with at home, what we're not allowed to get away with. And so when kids come here, that's kind of the template that they have for managing and dealing with conflict. Um, and so when you say fight, it's not like a kid's going to get up on like the third buckle in a WWE match and jump off and sure. body slam. But they might try that because they watched it. Um, Maybe. Boys in particular. Yes. But when we're talking fighting, we're not talking physical fight, and I just want to be be pretty obvious with that. Yes. But we're specifically talking to the interpersonal, Mm -hmm. verbal, Mm -hmm. 
wielding of weapons that we often mm-hmm. have. Yeah, and so we'll talk more about this later, but one of the main ways that that comes up is, is a kid willing to admit what he did wrong? Mm, yeah, is a kid ownership. willing to say, yes, I, yes, he, you know, he did hit me or he did call me a name. I also called him a name. So they see what, what um, they mimic what they see at home. They learn how to deal with conflict at home. So if conflict is something that's kind of swept under the rug or not addressed at home, it's going to be harder for them to know how to address it here. And so really the, the whole point in saying that is just, you know, for parents to be aware of how they deal with conflict at home, whether it be between siblings or even between spouses. The, the kids are great observers and not always great interpreters. Um, and so just to be aware of what they're seeing at home, they're going to model that here. And one thing parents we often say is it's rarely the event where the conflict originates. And so just kind of a case in point here, if, if two kids get into a fight or, to, or one child does something to the other, what we realize is, is the event is an outcome of the relationship, not the beginning of the conflict. The conflict has been brewing. Um, often uh, conflict can have very little to do with the other person. So if you have two students and one does something to the other, the other may truly be a victim. It mm-hmm. may be, why is this child out for mine? Well, they may not be. They may just be out for someone, yes. not for your child specifically. And this is really a great challenge for kids and parents um, consistently, but it requires empathy. And so as we work through that, uh, and, to, and to quote scripture, Jesus says, you know, you don't forgive. Uh, you know, seven times seven, you forgive 70 times seven. And, and while he doesn't mean an actual number, he does mean that it is, it is a repetitive piece for our heart to forgive others. And we want to teach that early on in identifying the behaviors of other students mm-hmm. so that we can have empathy mm-hmm. and that we can have ownership. And ultimately, that would lead to self-control. And as Dr. Sachs told mm-hmm. us, mm-hmm. Uh, both in the parent talk as well uh, as in our podcast, the number one identifier for a successful child is self-control. self-control. And all of this builds into it. And so it's not that we're, we're re- reaching for straws here, grasping for straws, but it really is that we want to identify these things. So you have a kid's reaction in conflict. They will mimic what they see at home. And then it's rarely the conflict that originates is kind of our second point here. Um, but we want to build empathy amidst that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, you know, when we talk about conflict, I hate conflict. I hate it. Um, it is uncomfortable. It is not fun to go through. But that doesn't mean that we see your child as bad if they're in a conflict, right? Because that would then ultimately mean we're all bad because we all have conflict. Um, so we are willing to do the hard work of wading in to that conflict, um, you know, getting kind of down in the mud and the grit of working through that process because ultimately we believe that that hard thing to work through is going to shape and nurture our child's heart. Um, you know, we, of course, from our, our, again, this goes back to our foundation, all of these kids, every single person is an image bearer of God. And that does not get erased when they have a conflict. That well does not go out the window when they have a conflict. Anything that reminds us that we're human, right. that we have limits, that we're in need of a savior. Um, there, 
you know, there are consequences um, for that behavior. Sometimes it's more of a natural consequence in that their friends don't want to hang out with them because they take a game too seriously and are a bad sport, um, get overly competitive. Well said, yeah. Sometimes the consequence may look more like, you know, a suspension um, at the worst, you know, a, um, a detention, something like that. Those consequences are there to help teach and shape. And again, all of, all of our consequences are process oriented. We don't just sit them in a room by themselves. Um, we, we work through and process with them. What happened at the time? What were, what were you experiencing? What do you think made you call your friend a doo-doo head, you know, um, yeah. as a silly example. But it's because we realize that we respond and react for reasons. Um, we, we, we know that. Um, and so we want to help slow that process down and help them become more aware of their actions and their responses. Well, and something that, that I would also say is often we suggest breaks. Mm-hmm. And breaks can look a ver- in a variety of ways. Um, sometimes a forced break would be a suspension of mm-hmm. some sort, right? Mm-hmm. However, some of these breaks are intentional. So I would, I would equate this to a, a doctor saying, hey, going to a doctor, you say my knee is sore, uh, my arm is sore, whatever. And he says, well, what have you been doing? Well, I run every day. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, as, as healthy as that running is and as much as you want, you're actually hurting yourself by continuing that just take a break from it. And a lot of times our kids are doing things that they don't realize are hurting themselves. They think they can power through and it's a social hurt, Mm -hmm. it's an emotional hurt, Mm -hmm. it's a cognitive hurt that Mm -hmm. they don't realize is is being exacerbated by these actions. And for us to say, hey, let's just take a break, that's us just saying, give it some rest, let's see if we can alleviate that pain for a moment and then get back into it and teach them how to mm-hmm. do this. Because again, our goal as a school is to help nurture and equip these kids, along with educating with a Christian worldview. And this is what Jesus does. Now, I mean, one of the, one of the I'd say a Max Licato book that uh, came out uh, a few years ago was really about Jesus's longest day. And he kind of chronicles a, mm-hmm. a lot of famous stories that we know that all really took place in one 24 hour time period and talked about at the end of the day, Jesus was trying to rest, rest for himself uh, as well as, as his disciples and, and being able to call that out. And I think that is vastly important for us to identify that sometimes a break is warranted and a break is needed, but it feels like we're bringing out a lot of shame mm-hmm. when we're really trying to disciple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, the biggest difference that I see, you know, people talk about shame and guilt. <clears throat> What's the difference? And Brene Brown, um, who has done a lot of research around shame and vulnerability, says guilt tells you that you've done something wrong. Some, you know, in the Christian world, we may call that conviction. We may call that the Holy Spirit. Right. Tells us that we've done something wrong. Shame tells us that we are wrong. Right. And that gets more to our core identity. Um, you know, do we believe that we're loved or that we are lovable? Um, and obviously all of our discipline is geared towards the guilt more, more so than the shame. Now that doesn't mean that at times our kids won't feel shame for what they've done. And as adults, it's our responsibility to speak into that um, when our kids may be experiencing that and to just remind them, we love you, we care for you. and. You know, especially at this age, they're still in that developmental stage of learning that people can be more than one thing and you can feel more than one thing at one time. 
And so sometimes it can be really hard for them to understand that even though they have done something wrong, they are still loved and accepted. That's well said. There's a great movie in the 1990s, uh, I believe it was in actually 1990, uh, The Mission, has Robert De Niro as Liam Neeson in it, um, has an amazing soundtrack, by the way, if you're ever looking for some really calm and, and uh, beautiful music. But it, it really has to do around um, a Spanish conquistador or a Spanish soldier, and um, he, he commits a murder. And this is an R-rated movie, but it's, it's actually a beautiful story, so I could recommend it to parents, but maybe not our children. Uh, and, and in this movie, though, there's this, this very famous scene where they're climbing up a waterfall, and to pay penance for his sin, this conquistador has, has um, roped together his armor, and he's climbing up a, a hill. He's struggling, he's dying, and this armor is literally going to pull him to his death. Mm. And a priest walks up and takes out a machete and just chops it off. Wow. And, and of course, this is extremely symbolic of just lopping off his sin and seeing it roll down into this, this abyss. But it's so beautiful because so often we think, hey, in my own shame, I've got to carry this. I have to. This is something that, that I've done, and, and I've got to suffer this. And it's part of that, that nature. And yet we, we want to teach our children is we can together as a body of Christ and as a transaction uh, on, on the Lord's behalf from one saint to another, as Scripture would say, we can help bestow that grace and chop that off. And sometimes that is in the form of nurturing and mm-hmm. disciplining mm-hmm. and ultimately discipling. And I think that that's a big difference of teaching guilt versus teaching shame, going back to that, because we want these children not to think that they are wrong but that maybe there is something wrong, which Scripture clearly states from the beginning of time, Adam and Eve were sinners. Mm -hmm. And we want to help our children understand that they are sinners, but they are saved by grace, Mm -hmm. being an image bearer of Christ, and hopefully someday turning their lives over to Him. Yeah, definitely. And so the next thing I would say, not that there's really a good segue from that to the next, is that we parent out of our story. And so our child comes home and we parent out of our own brokenness, our own sin. And this is really sad and this is hard. But we get to choose to work on our story and make it better. So um, in my time, I've been a dean of students at a high school. I've been an assistant head of school over discipline. And now, of course, being head of school, I see a lot of discipline come my way. And often the most visceral reactions I get from parents are from what their children are going through. And typically, it's not because of the specificity of what their child is going Mm -hmm. through, but it's what it triggers from their own past and what they have been through. And it regurgitates certain fears, certain anxieties, certain insecurities, and shame. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a very tough place for them to parent in a healthy way for their own child. And it teaches their children bad norms moving forward instead of helping them really develop an emotional health and well-being that will impact the child long term. And so what we have to do is take a moment. It is appropriate to be angry. It is appropriate to be sad. But can we take a moment as parents to say, we are going to identify what this has to do with our story and see if we can help our child's story be better than our own. And I think if you can phrase it that way, what a blessing that would be. Mm -hmm. But often it's kind of our nature just to run at it and say, I want to tackle it and protect my, my, you know, bear cub and do, do everything I can. But... If I can can absorb this and process it, maybe sleep on it even before an email is sent, Mm -hmm. can I then allow this story to be better for my child than it was for me? Um, One small example I give of this was uh, I had a parent 
um, years ago, um, probably 10 plus years ago, whose son was in a fight. And this was at a high school, and uh, the son was not a bad kid, but he needed to go home. I mean, he got in a fight, it's a suspension, that was in our handbook. So we're having a meeting with the parent, and the dad had a, had a physical disability. And so he came into our office and sat down and met with us, and we had a fair discussion. But when a certain word was brought up, and I honestly to this day forget what word, the dad pointed out his disability, mm teared up with his eyes and say, do you know how often I was teased at school? How mm -hmm. often I went through these things and now my son's in this. I'm not going to stand, you know, for my son to yep. be teased. Now, it was actually ended up being a very healthy conversation because he displayed his vulnerability there. Mm -hmm. But boy, was that a hard place to be and a hard reminder for him. And I think when we go to those places, if we can at least identify that, totally. the health long term is so much better and that kid's done great and, and the parents uh, from from everything I, I remember them but then also have seen since then have, have been great parents and, and partnered together well with that school for that child's health but that took some humility Definitely. and that took some vulnerability to parent out of his brokenness yeah and you know that that reminds me of something that um, a woman that has been a huge influence in my life has said to me over and over that God has made you the mom to your kids, right? That was his plan. You are exactly who God wants to parent your kids. And I would say that to every parent in this building. And so while your story may at times cause some difficulty, it's also it can also be used for the redemption redeeming redemptive part of maybe your child's story maybe your own story um, is that you know your story doesn't have to define you in that way right. um, God God puts you in that place for a purpose for sure um, but it's kind of learning okay how do I use this to benefit to help my child not necessarily to work through my own stuff right and a lot of this curtails exactly to, to what Dr. Sachs writes in mm -hmm. his book the collapse of parenting and one of the things that he says and he said in his talk and, and he this is kind of a motto of his if you want your child to be a better person you have to be a better parent now yeah. that's hard to hear as a parent so hard right it's hard to hear as a parent so what does that mean to be a better parent or be a better person um, if we go spiritually we've got a lot there scripture gives us a lot but I think we can start in the midst of conflict knowing that if we can identify our own brokenness, yep. that's a really healthy place to be. Very good place to start. Definitely. Yeah. And again, reminder that conflict is not bad. It's not fun. It's not what I want. You know, we can admit that. Um, but it does give us an opportunity to remember that we are sinners in need of grace and that, that conflict can help shape us for future relationships as well so while this is just we're gonna just hit on the first half of our talk today the next part of this is really discussing the four main players in conflict mm -hmm. and unlike you would think the child being number one we identify the parents as being the starting point as far as the players in conflict and so as we look at these we, we do have four players 
parents, teachers, child, and then of course the other family. And as we look at these though, parents, our goal is to, to definitely um, assist you in just saying how can we process better because we identify ourselves as a partnership school. We identify ourselves as a school that is a part of that three-legged stool between church, home, and school. And we want to work with you, not against you. Mm -hmm. And like Maria has said, conflict is not bad. We do expect to butt heads with you at times. Mm -hmm. But how can we assist you in your parenting and assist you in the nurturing of your child, particularly when they're in our care within this building? So as we go through this, know these are best practices that we've seen both on the national scale, but also from our ages of three, upward of six, and of course, um, several of us have experience all the way through the preteen, teen, yeah. and, and even early adulthood years. Mm -hmm. And so as we get into that, just kind of take, take note of that. But let's go ahead and start as we look at these players in conflict as the parents. Yeah, so the parents. So what do we do when our kid gets in the car or our kid says at the dinner table, which tends to be kind of, or right before bed, the, the highest times that this comes up, hey, this kid called me a name today, or hey, this kid hit me in the face today. What I first want to say to you as parents um, is be patient in your communication and response. Um, so it's very easy to send off a quick reactionary email um, that that's what our culture says is appropriate. That's what feels good in the moment because it feels like, gosh, I was so helpless and so powerless to help my child when he was hurt today. I'm gonna to do whatever I can to help my child now. So take a breath, be thoughtful, and know that, that sending that email and maybe, maybe even 20 minutes after your child talks to you can help give us a clearer mind, um, a more even rational mind um, at times to address the conflict and not to escalate the conflict. Um, remember that your child is very perceptive and, and aware of what grabs your attention. And that's why it's important to ask questions. That's why it's important to kind of quote investigate is that our parents know or our children know how to get a reaction from us. And that's a good thing. Right. That's, that's, I mean, that's how they've stayed alive, right? Is they've made their need known. Um, and, and we have, we have, we have responded to that need, but it's really important that, that we also realize that at times that can be, Hey, I, I want your attention because I, I know that you're going to react to it. Right. And I would say the the hardest time of day for almost 90% of our students is the three to four o'clock hour. Mm -hmm. the they get in the four, car. They get in the car. They've held it together. Someone said something to them, and in the moment, it wasn't phased. The teacher didn't see the phasing, or the teacher may have even corrected the behavior. Mm -hmm. the, the teacher may have even given a consequence in the moment to the other child if, if something was done. However, your child may have held it together. Mm -hmm. They've been brave for the rest of the day, and they get into their first truly, I would say, Maslow bottom rung safe place yep. which is the car and they lose it yep. 
And what do you do as a parent? Because now the only thing I can control is to react to it. And, and one of the things that we often say, uh, at least within our own office, is how can we respond and not react? Mm -hmm. And responding is going to be different than just reacting. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about that, the child, yes, they, they absolutely will, quite frankly, and I'll, I'll say this, They'll, they'll manipulate, mm -hmm. right? They'll manipulate for certain things. I know when my son actually wants a toy versus when he's just curious. Uh, but they, they want to manipulate. Um, but then there's also just this absolute outpouring of saying, I'm finally in a safe place, yeah. and here's my emotion. And sometimes it just takes, takes time to get through that emotion. Mm -hmm. But as parents, our job is not to allow our child to always be controlled by their emotions. Our job is to allow them to feel their emotions and help process. Yep. And often that comes in the form of, and I would always encourage parents to ask questions before making accusations mm -hmm. when reaching out to a faculty member or teacher, especially knowing that the teacher is there for the benefit of your child and never against your child. Definitely, definitely. And this again is, goes back to what, what we say is we want our kids to take responsibility. We want them to have integrity. And if that's not modeled at home, it's gonna be incredibly difficult for them to do that at school. Well said, well well said. And you know, the one thing that we always say for parents when your child is getting into that car and you start asking those questions, really two things that we, we always say, ask the question of why did the conflict escalate? Mm -hmm. What caused it? Why has the teacher not been dealing with this is a question that we often get from parents. Instead of asking why haven't you been dealing with this or why hasn't the teacher dealt with this, ask did the teacher know about it mm -hmm. because sometimes our most experienced teachers who are on it their classroom management is exceptional it's in those very minuscule moments where kids know to go for it yep. um, knowing that the teacher may have stepped out of the room to speak to another child or they may have just turned their back for a moment that's when these things can happen and our kids are intuitive and our kids are sinners and they know how to do that and in the same thing when you're talking with your child so if you're, you're asking the did the teacher know with the with the teacher with your child ask the question or rather dig like an archaeologist and not a backhoe an archaeologist sweeps dirt away gently and carefully and with your child often it's easy to dig like a backhoe and say I just want to get to the root of the problem that's that's my, my nature dig like an archaeologist do it slowly subtly maybe do it over the afternoon maybe let them process it and say I'm so sorry you're feeling that way that is a terrible way to end the day or a terrible thing to happen to you during the day, why don't you take a break and let's process this yep. later. When they're better able to process it and they are also more cognitive and more rational and able to regurgitate that information in a clear manner. Yeah, definitely. So moving on to the other family. The other family. What do we do there? Yeah, and this is, this is really our, our second person. Uh, the first thing that I would say as far as the school goes, don't email them. Um, and, and Maria can talk more about that in a second, but the first thing I will say is the school will mediate. We will not be the messenger for you with the other family. We're happy to mediate. We're happy to set up a conversation, help facilitate that conversation, but we are not going to be messengers. So if you come to us and you say, hey, uh, Johnny did this to Stevie, um, we want Stevie's parents to know on our behalf. That will not happen. Now, if there's something that we as a school feel like needs to be communicated, by all means we will, but our job is to protect both sides, or we still have a confidentiality piece that we have to respect and, and enforce, but we will be happy to mediate 
but we won't be a messenger. Yeah. And, you know, now we can expand this no email to no text, uh, which is obviously the easiest way to communicate both time-wise and interpersonally because you don't have to look at the person in the face or hear their tone of voice. But if you have a conflict with another family, do it over the phone, like with the phone held up to your ear talking or in person. And remember what you're modeling for your kids is how to manage conflict. And so if they see you fighting over text, they're going to learn that okay, when you have a conflict, you just fight over text. But so much is missed. So much is missed over text. Um, And so even though it's hard and even though it's messy and it's uncomfortable, we'd really encourage you to have that conflict, deal with that conflict in person or or over the telephone, in person ideally. And one thing that I would also say is it's very easy to triangulate these conversations. Oh, so easy. Yes. And what that means is essentially, if Maria, you and I are in a conflict, my number one thing is I would go immediately to a friend and verbally process it. Yep. And then I've brought in somebody else. And there's the triangulation of, of a relationship. And this is an incredibly toxic pattern that we have. And some of us can easily validate this by saying, well, I'm a verbal processor. That's an easy thing to do. And folks, I am 100% guilty of this. This is an easy thing. It's very low-hanging fruit for me, especially if I'm in conflict or have a problem, I'll disguise it as venting, wanting the process, wanting to get feedback, Mm -hmm. but in reality, I'm just wanting to complain about somebody Mm -hmm. else or complain about Mm -hmm. that. And this is something that these friendships and marriages, uh, long-term, our children are gonna have as as an impact. Because, you know, how unhealthy is it if a spouse, two spouses get into a fight and then there's a triangulation of of that, that's not a licensed professional that can really wreak havoc on a marriage and a future family mm-hmm. as well. Definitely, definitely. Um, one thing too that I would I would say is reconciliation in these cases equals ownership, and ownership is going to equal humility. If children cannot own their own mistakes, then it's going to be really tough long term to ask for forgiveness and accept forgiveness. But if children can own their mistakes, this will make the reconciliation better. And reconciliation can't happen without both children taking ownership. And so kind of two things out of this. The first is I would say ownership does not mean you forget what happened, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Scripture does not Mm -hmm. say forgive and forget. It says forgive. It does not say forget. The other thing that I I would reiterate, and this is just a phrase, is I've always said this, and I firmly believe it. It's always a two-way street. One side's just wider than the other. And it is. Um, and often, even the victim can have 1%, and, and it's rare, rare, rare where that's not true. And sometimes it is, it, I mean, there's always an exception, but most of the time that is the rule. And an example, um, you know, years ago of, of some reconciliation that I wish would, could have been modeled in a better way was I was in second grade. I was on a soccer team. And it was a tie game, and I remember a kid from the other team kicked a goal, and I was playing defense, and I stuck my foot up. It was the only thing I could do to try and prevent the ball. And the ball was going to go in the net regardless. But I remember I put my foot up, and it just grazed my foot and went in the goal. And the goalie turns around in second grade and gives me the middle finger. (laughs) And none none of the parents saw it or anything. Well, I'm humiliated. I'm devastated. I go home and I tell my parents this, and my dad comes unglued. 
Mm. I mean unglued. And the kid's name was Lee Stanfield. I doubt he's listening to this. But uh, I remember my dad was, it was he's going to take, take vengeance. Like, this wasn't a school team. This was just a, a local rec league we were playing on. I happened to go to school with Lee. He lived very close to me. My mom uh, knew that he lived uh, walking distance to our house, and so that's what my dad did. But I walked over to the house and knocked on the door. Now, there's a difference in the way you do that. Sure. My dad is going over fuming, and he's going he's gonna, to, you know. It's that reaction. Right. He's totally reacting. He's in the moment. He's emotional. Gets to the door, learns um, immediately that, number one, Lee's mom is pregnant, mm. and number two, that Lee's mom is recently divorced. Mm. And so there's a lot of emotion there, yeah. and Lee had a tough, tough year that year. Uh, ended up uh, graduating high school with this kid. So, I mean, it, you know, there you know, product being that that relationship continued for years on end. And, you know, it really was good for my dad to have a moment of sobriety there. And I think the engagement was much better thereafter that he kind of was able to drink some of that in. But I just remember as a child, not only was I humiliated, but I was devastated, not just by the reaction of my teammate mm-hmm. and classmate, but by the reaction of my parent. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough thing. That's yeah. a tough place Definitely. to be as a kid. Definitely. And, you know, again, that reiterates our responsibility as parents both to be uh, the protector. You know, we we do have a role like your dad took on there to protect you from harm. That is a good thing. Uh, But even as parents, we're learning how to shape that protector role. We're learning how to be a protector. And that changes as our kid gets older. And that changes, you know, when they, when they initially walk into our halls as a kindergartner, it's going to look one way to protect them, and it's going to look a little different when they exit at sixth grade. Absolutely. Definitely. So asking, you know, when is it appropriate to process through this with my kid and find a solution within our own home as opposed to maybe going and knocking on the door and like your dad did and, yeah. and you know, yeah, he was kind of stopped in his tracks there. Yeah. It's a really powerful story. And just, again, we are, re- we are training our kids for the future. So how we respond when we're upset is going to model to them how it's appropriate to respond when we're upset. Well said. Well, we're going to stop here today. Next week we are going to talk about the teacher and the child and how that comes into conflict and what the roles that we see our teachers having as well as the roles that we want our students to have amidst that as well as just recommending some resources um, for next week but parents thanks so much for listening so part two of being a peacemaker we'll do next week but um, again as topics continue to come up and things that you're facing things that you're hearing please ask if we can't do a whole podcast about it we'd be happy to at least address it Um, even in a short synopsis uh, on this as we discuss that because this is what Maria and I love to do. We love to discuss these things because they are incredible in the way that they form and and transform our our children's lives as we hope that they grow to be good adults and good husbands, good wives, good parents, good employees, good employers. And so keep sending those things to us. But from that, we will talk to you next week.